This podcast was recorded on April 16th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm your host, Jeff Sherman, with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, we are broadcasting live from remote locations on day 28 of Safety at Home here in California. Although it's a little bit longer for us at Double Line, we've had at least a week or so on that number, uh, but now it's been roughly over a month since we've started this. And uh, we've been giving you macro updates over the last couple of weeks uh, with Jeff Mayberry. And there's been a lot of questions about the securitized space and what's going on there. And uh, when Sam and I were discussing next possible guests, we figured who better to bring on than Mr. Andrew Hsu, who's a portfolio manager at DoubleLine. He covers our securitized products and he's a co-portfolio manager on the total return strategy. Well, welcome to the Sherman Show once again, Andrew. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's really kind of jump into things right now. Um, we've seen a lot of activity in the marketplace. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, divergence in performance of sectors of the marketplace. And I think, you know, the thing on people's minds is, um, you know, looking across various parts of the credit markets or risk markets, uh, what we've noticed is that the securitized market appears to have lagged other areas of the credit markets and risk markets. Uh, can you give us your perspective on what is what's going on there and what's been transpiring in the securitized space? Sure. Um, yeah, so this lag has been, you know, something that we've seen you know, since I really started my career in this business 20 years ago. Um, and I have a couple of theories about this, but the main one I believe uh, is really around the investor base in structured finance. So historically speaking, um, it's really been a uh, largely institutional product, but over time it's involved and, you know, retail investors are definitely actively involved in the space today. Uh, just to give you an example, back in 08, uh, it really took equity markets selling off in a significant way. And then uh, there were serious questions about the banking system and their extension of mortgage credit to borrowers. And finally, this led to uh, downgrading of non-agency mortgage-backed securities. Uh, that downgrading actually triggered a liquidation event because the holders at that time were you know, almost exclusively levered institutional entities that had uh, rating requirements. Uh, so a similar thing happened just last month. Um, we had the pandemic and then uh, subsequent lockdown, and a lot of concerns about growth. Um, it caused, uh, you know, certain markets, corporates, equities to sell off, and uh, this this caused um, uh, certain holders to have to liquidate to meet margin calls. Uh, the difference this time around uh, was that the large largest holders weren't uh, institutional holders; they were actually public REITs. So instead of having um, like institutionals trigger the the sell off, uh, it was a more of a retail account this time. Uh, so what this has led to, in my observations, is uh, a lag time that's definitely still persists, but the lag time is reduced. Uh, the transmission mechanism to liquidate uh, will still require other markets to liquidate, whether it's equities or, or corporate debt, uh, but it will uh, ultimately trigger a, a selling event in structured finance, um, you know, once some of these uh, variables are put in place. So let, let's talk about the structure that the the structured credit market or the securitized market. Let, let's give a refresher to our folks out there on how this market works. And sure. so um, we're talking about cash flows that are backed by uh, different types of assets. So uh, maybe you can draw a parallel uh, to the corporate market. Give our listeners uh, a good example or at least some kind of way of, of framing how to think about securitized credit. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people are familiar with corporate debt out there. And uh, the way I would kind of, uh, you know, explain it is really going back to my accounting 101 days uh, in my freshman year in college. So in my first accounting class, I learned this equation, uh, the equation of the balance sheet, and it's assets equals liabilities plus equity. When you're investing in corporate debt, you're investing in the liability side of that equation. Now, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about structured finance, how it's 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 complex and maybe it's even uh, not very transparent. 
And I'd actually argue against that because with a corporate uh, debt, uh, you're investing in a corporate balance sheet and that balance sheet can change over time. Uh, I like to use the example of Amazon just because everyone's familiar with Amazon. They started out as a, um, a book retailer and uh, you could say that their assets when they first started were books. Uh, they had liabilities, they had uh, debt, and then they had equity as well. Over time, all of those variables have changed. Their assets now include media, they include uh, you know data, they include uh, books still, and pretty much everything else in your household. Uh, on the liability side, they've issued more debt, uh, certainly, and they've retired certain, certain um, debt issues. And then on the equity side, the same could be said. Uh, there's been stock splits, uh, they issued a lot more equity, uh, so all of the entire equation has changed. Now with structured finance, doesn't matter if you're talking about mortgages, commercial real estate, uh, CLOs, or, or any asset back space. The asset side is a pool of those assets that is pre-identified before you enter into the transaction. And that asset base does not change over the life of the transaction. The liabil liability side also stays intact over the life of the transaction. Sure, there's paying down of the structure, but there, you cannot add additional leverage into that structure. And then finally, the equity side is generally retained by the issuer, um, and that also doesn't change. So in some respects, I would say that uh, a balance sheet is a perfect characterization of a structured finance transaction. And uh, rather than moving around and, and changing over a life of an investment, it actually stays intact. So in many ways, I do think it's more transparent than investing in a corporate, uh, corporate debt or even equities. Yeah, so so let's let's use an example. I, I think that's a perfect way to think about it. That it's just really a balance sheet once again. Um, it's the asset liability uh, equation. Uh, but as you as you get into the asset types, uh, maybe you could describe uh, one sector of the market. Um, let's just talk about like for instance, let's talk about the basics. It's not really thought of as a credit market as much as a, an interest rate market. But why don't we talk about agency MBS and give an example there? Um, how people think about uh, the mortgage market. Because uh, a lot of people own homes out there, so maybe we can give an example on agency MBS. Uh, sure. And is the question just to be clear? Um, the mechanics of how an agency MBS would work. Uh, yeah, in yeah. Just in its simplest form, yeah. form that we yeah, sure. we're going to dig into these things. We're going to talk about tranching and different ratings and things. And like, yeah. so I just want to give a, a perfect, a, a very basic example of how this works. Sure. So. Um, Let's just draw it out. Um, so on the asset side here, so again, we're using the equation assets equals liabilities plus equity. Uh, the asset side here will be a pool of mortgages, and this will be a very diverse pool of mortgages. Uh, and if you think about a mortgage, uh, you know, I'm assuming that a lot of our listeners have mortgages on on uh, on this call or listening into this webcast uh, or podcast, excuse me. You make a principal and interest payment every single month. Now that cash flow is aggregated on the asset side, and then it flows over to the liability slash plus equity side. The the cash flow is paid down in a uh, sequential manner, meaning the tranches, the senior most part of the liability side, the L side of the equation, are paid first. Once they're satisfied, then the next tranche is paid down, and then so forth and so on until you get all the way to the bottom. When you if you still have enough cash flow, the equity gets any remaining cash flow. So the cash flows come from the asset side and they flow top down. Now for the agency side, this is not going to be uh, a concern, but if I flip it over to non-agencies, you can actually take losses. And we do know from the 08 financial crisis that not everyone pays their mortgages. And unfortunately, they have to default on these mortgages sometimes. So as you lose uh, assets on, your, on the left side, hand side of the equation because of defaults, uh, you know, envision these losses flowing over to the liability and equity side. This equation always needs to balance. So the losses actually flow from the bottom up. So the equity would be the first one to take some losses. And, uh, you know, if losses are severe enough, then you will eat through all of the equity and then start hitting the most junior tranches of the liability side. So cash flows come from the asset side, flow top down to the liability equity side, and then losses flow from the bottom up. Right. So I think I think that's an important illustration here as we talk about the securitized market, because it's still a liability that you're buying. Right. That's what the that's what the security that you're purchasing is, is the liability. The key difference here is the asset type. And so your cash flows are backed in this instance by a physical asset. Right. In this instance, it's backed by the loan and hence I'm sorry, it's backed by the property, uh, which is the kind of securitizing that asset since we call it securitized. So. 
Um, let's talk about why there's been such pain in this market. You alluded to this early on. And of course, the agency MBS market, as you mentioned, uh, the government in some way guarantees those positions. And so um, the, the when you're buying the liabilities, you don't really have that default uh, risk in there, right? You just have some interest rate sensitivity and the timeliness of those cash flows. Right. But when we talk about the the credit parts of those markets, um, maybe you can talk about some of the things that have transpired there. We've seen some big pr- uh, some big pricing dislocations. You had mentioned uh, some of the REITs out there. Talk about what's transpired over the last six weeks in uh, different parts of the securitized market and what's caused the rethinking of the valuation of some of those assets. Sure. Uh, so th- the structured finance markets are very broad, uh, and the question you ask is is very relevant. But there are different nuances affecting each of the uh, underlying uh, sectors. So you know, keeping uh, on the topic of REIT liquidations, uh, you know, when they came to market and started liquidating their assets into the market, um, you know, it, it was it was shocking. Uh, what what we had was really. Uh, for many, many years, a primary issue market, the secondary market uh, it was very much intact, but you didn't have large scale sellers coming into the market. Hey, now, and Andrew, real yes. quick, um, just to be clear to the listeners, too, we we're talking about mortgage REITs here, too, not 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 kind of uh, equity type of REITs out there, but primarily mortgage REITs. That's correct? right. That's yes. correct. Mortgage REITs. Uh, that's yeah, important to make that distinction. So, uh, you know, as liquidation started hitting the market and, and you layer on the the concerns around, uh, you know, this COVID-19 uh, virus and the subsequent growth reduction that everyone's forecasting in, it really led to a panic in the markets. So uh, a flood of assets came into the market. Uh, you know, investors were very much there to to pick up these investments, but uh, they were requiring a significant discount or, or very high yield in order to, to buy these. So we started seeing that occur in the mortgage market first. Uh, on the agency side, uh, you know, Thankfully, the government stepped in and essentially Fed injected liquidity into the treasury market and agency market to improve liquidity there. But uh, as these entities continued to sell down, uh, they started impacting the, the credit side of the market. So non-agency mortgages, uh, non-agency CMBS were, were at the forefront of these liquidations and uh, there was severe spread widening there. Uh, and just to give you some semblance of, of of the the yield or spread differential between uh, what what I would call pre-COVID and post-COVID. Uh, Pre-COVID, a lot of these assets are trading in the three, maybe four percent loss-adjusted yield range. Uh, during this liquidation process, they traded up into the double digits, uh, call it ten to twelve. In certain asset classes, uh, even higher yields. Uh, you you ask a question about um, you know certain sectors really taking a hit. Uh, you know, in the C, uh, commercial mortgage-backed space, there are, is a lot of concern around the hospitality side, uh, hotels, resorts, um, and also retail. So when you do have assets secured by these underlying assets where investors have a, a lot of concern about the um, growth prospects in the near term uh, on, on those asset types, they're going to need to have a significant yield pickup to get involved. And that's what we saw uh, over the last six weeks. And this wasn't just confined to um, the mortgage market or commercial real estate market. Uh, The CLO market was also impacted as were the underlying assets, the bank loan market. But of course, we talked about the lagging effect. Uh, Here, bank loan prices uh, and spreads moved first. And then uh, because these assets are essentially uh, the, the underlying collateral for CLOs, uh, CLOs subsequently moved and spread. And then on the asset back space, uh, you know, there are different areas. The consumer market, there's there's a lot of concern, right? I mean, we're seeing record pace of unemployment, uh, uh, you know, week over week here, uh, but also in some of the hard asset spaces, especially in the transportation space. Um, I, I would say transportation space uh, is very uh, similar to that of the hospitality space in um, CMBS in that uh, you know, people's behavior is changing. Uh, transportation needs and demands are, are starting to fall off, and investors are pricing that in when they're looking at investments backed by these types of assets. Okay, so um, what are the impacts of these policies of the the stay-at-home policies? You'd mentioned travel and leisure, um, but also like in the mortgage market, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about, uh, or at least announcements of saying, telling people don't pay your mortgage. Um, This is just temporary and things. What are some of the impacts there and how did that impact the pricing of the non-government guaranteed or what we call the non-agency RMBS market? 
Yeah, um, so this uh, non-paying of your liabilities is is not just confined to the mortgage market. There, there, there's uh, clearly been discussion about not paying uh, certain areas of uh, uh, interest in certain areas of student loans as well. So it is uh, it is pretty pervasive across um, you know a broad spectrum of of uh, assets. And and uh, you know definitely this is not just confined to the structured product space, but really a, a th thematic that is is kind of broad in nature. Uh, specifically with the mortgage side of the business, um, there's a lot of concern about forbearance, uh, and that means just uh, people not paying their mortgages and, and extending this out. So initially, the concern is around extension risk in these investments, uh, and this could be both on the, uh, on the agency side and the non-agency side. But ultimately, uh, what the concerns are around is that eventually this leads to non-payment. And the first line of defense in the non-agency mortgage market is uh, the servicer advance. And what happens is there are servicers who essentially collect payments on the underlying mortgages if they are uh, if they deem that the underlying investment, the house in this example, still has equity in it, and if they continue to advance the principal and interest to keep uh, cash flows going in the trust. Uh, then they ultimately will recoup this. Uh, the, the problem is, is that the Fed uh, and the government essentially has stepped in and uh, uh, supported a lot of markets, uh, the corporate market, uh, for example, but they have not specifically supported uh, this part of this uh, of the structured finance market, the servicing side. So there's a lot of concerns among, among servicers that they're going to advance into this. There's a lot of uncertainty. And then ultimately, how will they recover their, their advances? Uh, so, so that is a, a big concern around the non-agency mortgage market. Uh, the participants in the market are definitely forecasting in some extension risk. They're also forecasting in uh, what we'd call a donut in the cash flow, meaning that there would be a period of potentially uh, no cash flow on some of these trusts. Uh, and you know, when you're bidding on positions, you you know you want to be mindful of that as well. So, so some you know a lot of these factors are starting to become priced into uh, uh, these securities right now. So will you talk about the donut hole, as you call it, or uh, really just turning off the cash flow spigot for a period of time? How, how does that impact the ultimate recovery value or the, or the price of these assets? Because you're describing a world of forbearance where um, in, in an idyllic world, what happens is, you know, if these pe folks aren't making payments for two or three months, then the economy picks back up, they get back to work, then they go back to paying their mortgages. And so you, you describe this as extension risk. So you kind of modify the loan, tack it on the back end, and it goes, uh, and then um, it just kind of extends that loan out. Um, but how, how do you think about um, the recovery value of those assets? I mean, um, if you lose a couple months payment, should that be a huge hit to the asset pool? Or how? How do you kind of model that and think about that? Answer? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to get too technical here, but it really depends on the impact will be dependent on the um, the lifespan of the investment. If, if my expectation is uh, to buy a, a position and the the entire transaction should last one year, uh, for example, and then it extends out by, you know, half a year, that's the meaningful change in expectations. Now, if my investment is expected to last, you know, 10 years, and extends out for three months, then the impact is is much more minimal. But to answer your question, uh, in terms of uh, you know how does this ultimately impact the trust and you know how people um, you know modeling this, well, the expectation is that for the servicers to continue to advance into this. Uh, if you look at the non-agency mortgage market, uh, certainly there is new issue, but the vast preponderance of the market right now is still the legacy product, the product that was issued really. Uh, pre-crisis, uh, a pre-08 crisis. So a lot of these borrowers, they have demonstrated the ability to pay over a significant period of time. Uh, many of them are current, meaning they're they're not delinquent in their in their mortgages. And also, this is an important fact that they built up significant amount of equity in their home. So there's a lot of collateral behind these investments. So servicers uh, will likely feel comfortable advancing into a trust where the the underlying assets have a significant amount of equity built in because ultimately what will happen is is let's just say uh you know the, the investors end up defaulting what would happen is you would end up selling the underlying asset which is a home in this in this case if it has a lot of equity built up in it the first person in line to get paid back is uh, or i should say one of the front of the people in the front line to get paid back is the servicer so they're going to get all their advance back and then the trust will get the remainder of the cash flow. So the investors are actually expecting or forecasting in higher severities 
given this this circumstance. Uh, but I do think that um, if you look at the mortgage borrower now in 2020 versus back in 08, they're in a better position because underwriting standards were much more uh, stringent and much more disciplined. And ultimately what that led to is a stronger and better quality borrower with uh, actually equity in their home. So, you know, severity is really the the key variable here that's being adjusted to uh, address some of those donut or uh, disruptions in cash flow. And when you say severity, you're just talking about loss severity too. So, what is the it's the inverse of the um, of the recovery value, right? Um, so, um, let's 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 talk about this too because we saw a massive repricing, especially um, in the middle of March. Uh, it seemed like you, you talk we we've been talking about securitized lagging. It seemed like the corporate markets and equity markets got hit first in the downturn. Although there was some softness and securitized, it really kind of got amplified around the re-liquidation in, um, in mid-March. Um, so when you think about what's happened there and you think about the programs that have been announced to date, and we, we've talked about a few of them in the previous podcast, um, what impact do these government programs have on these various securitized markets to date? Because what we've seen, uh, if I use the ETFs out there, uh, we covered this thing last time, Sam, uh, we talked about you know the the recovery of the drawdown. We look at LQD, for instance, as as a, as a proxy for corporate bonds. Understanding yeah. that it has its own nuances there. It's re, I mean it's like three percent off its all time high. Uh, sure. We look at junk bonds. You know, using the ETFs again. Pick your favorite. Um, you're seeing those maybe twenty five percent off their highs. Right, not not twenty five percent return, but. We've had a 75% retracement back of those levels. Um, what's happened in the securitized market? We haven't seen recoveries there across all of those assets very similar. Uh, we haven't seen the same participation and risk on sentiment. And there's been kind of a differentiation across, um, let's say, a differentiation between the ratings, like the highest rated, the most senior tranches, and the lower rated tranches, even not the equity, but the things that are lower rated and or mezzanine positions. Um, how has the uh, Fed's programs to date um, impacted the securitized market? And kind of uh, can you walk us through why there's a disconnect there? We haven't seen such retracement, especially in the lower quality tranches in some of these assets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um there's a lot in there. So. Yeah, there's a lot. So, uh, you know, I'm going to answer this as directly as, as I can here. Uh, the, the most directly uh, impactful policy that has been uh, implemented that will help structured finance uh, assets is really the TALF program. So the TALF program it's, it has a number of different assets it'll include. It includes a lot of consumer-based uh, assets, uh, autos, student loans, credit cards. Um, and then some some other notable areas such as small business loans, but it recently also added triple uh, A static CLOs and also legacy triple A conduit CMBS type positions. Uh, this will help the market in terms of uh, providing uh, a liquidity function for them. Uh, so, uh, you know, for a lot of these um, these sectors, it's imperative that uh, availability of credit remains uh, intact and also the pricing for that credit is is palatable for the underlying borrower. Uh, the TALF program uh, aims to you know impact all of these areas. We're already seeing that impact. So uh, TALF program only invests in AAA assets across the board and all of those asset classes I mentioned. Uh, what's very interesting is is that we had a pullback you know three weeks ago in the broader structured finance market. Uh, a number of things were put in place to, to help the market, uh, the broader markets. TAL program was implemented to help the structured finance markets. Today, I would say that, you know, broadly speaking, the TAL program would almost not be utilized because pricing has come back so, so, uh, so quickly on a lot of those asset classes that I mentioned at the AAA level. Now, your question on the mezzanine part of the capital structure, how, uh, you know, how come that is not impacted? Well, uh, I do think there's a lot of uh, there's a real concern out there in terms of how, uh, you know, the, the virus and then the subsequent lockdown and then the slowdown of the economy will impact a lot of these areas. Uh, there are the haves and have nots. Um, you know, there are certain areas, as I mentioned, hospitality, leisure in the CMBS space, uh, transportation assets in the asset back space. There are some still some questions about how uh, servicing will will uh, be handled on the non-agency space. So 
because of these uncertainties, investors still require a pretty significant yield premium to get invested in, in the bottom part of the capital structure. Uh, and the way I would characterize this is it's really looking, saying this is that, um, you know, you have an IG product and you also have a high yield product in structured finance. The senior parts of the capital structure are very much viewed as an IG product. They're, they're IG, explicitly IG rated by different rating agencies. But then as you move down the capital structure, uh, you know, you're again, you're closer to taking losses. And thus, you know, a lot of these positions are uh, deemed high yield and in many cases even rated as a high yield product. Uh, the one difference here is that, you know, the corporate market does have really this explicit support from the government, right? They, they will buy ETFs, they will buy, uh, you know, investment grades. Uh, securities. They will also buy fallen angels if if those rating agents uh, rating agencies downgrade certain IG product uh, after I, I think the date was um, March 22nd or March 23rd. So there's a lot of explicit support there. You don't have that explicitly for for the mezzanine or high yield portion of the structured finance market. So it's trading to uh, you know potentially high losses. So investors want high returns for the for that potential risk. Okay, and so when you look at that, um, is the only difference between kind of these, uh, let, let's call them, they're still investment grade rated tranches, but they're not AAA. Uh, when you look at those tranches of various securitized products, whether that's ABS, CMBS, uh, non-agency RMBS, CLO, um, is it really the, the, is it your belief that the reason that we haven't seen the snapback in terms of price performance simply due to the fact that there is not this explicit uh, support from the Fed or these lending facilities out there? Um, I, you know, I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is this, is that, um, and, and I think this can be said about all, all markets, right? Uh, we haven't seen changes in fundamentals yet, right? A, a lot of this trading, whether it's this very sharp move in, in equity prices, uh, also spread widening in the corporate side, both on the investment grade and high yield side, uh, that was all reactionary based on uh, these fears in the market uh, as a result of what's going on in the uh, environment now, right? With this uh, expectation of a very rapid slowdown in, in the economy. Now, you, you have those same fears in the, in the structured finance markets. Um, you don't have an explicit backstop on the junior part of the capital structure, as you mentioned, in some cases, you know, these are still very highly rated securities, but you don't have an explicit uh, support from the government. The other thing you don't have is you don't have clarity on fundamentals yet. So I do think that you don't you don't see the snapback yet because investors are waiting to see if there's a uh, significant change in fundamentals to the downside. And right now what they're doing is they're just pricing in, you know, I don't want to say worst case scenario, but a very draconian scenario, and they will buy to those levels. Uh, so, you know, part of this is a confidence issue, and it's also um, an uncertainty issue. Um, so I would, that's the way I would justify it. Yeah, I think I think it's important to really pick up on what, or at least what I picked up on what you said there, Terry, is you're talking about fundamentals. And yeah. so fundamentals are very difficult to ascertain for any asset today, right? Because of the uncertainty of this, of how long the shutdown will be, what the recovery looks like. I mean, there's no good model out there. We have to run a lot of scenarios and think about it, right? And so um, you, you mentioned fundamentals and, and people pricing this in, but by extension, shouldn't those same type of analyses take place within the investment grade corporate debt market, the high yield debt market in the U.S.? Shouldn't it also take place in the equity market? I mean, to me, there's a very, very large disconnect or at least a different perspective. So um, you could say one market's right or wrong, but there's definitely a different pricing mechanism, a different perspective being priced into these securitized markets versus, uh, again, IG bank loans and let's say even the U.S. equity market. Isn't that yeah. fair to characterize? It, it is. It is. And I, I think this is maybe the one distinction. And uh, I think it's a very important point you bring up. Uh, the structured finance market, it doesn't matter what what the underlying collateral is. It could be mortgages, it could be, um, you know, bank loans, you know, it could be in anything in between. But it is a loss adjusted market, meaning every single investment that we look at and we look at many of these, uh, the analysis is done at the asset level, meaning each bond has a different pool of assets. We do the work on the underlying assets uh, unique to that specific pool. And then what we do is we assign a loss analysis based on the underlying quality of those uh, assets, whether it's, you know, again, mortgages or bank loans or, or 
or uh, transportation assets in the asset back space. And then what we would do is layer that on to the liability side and uh, you know forecast where we expect losses to go up to, and we will buy bonds at prices where we deem that we get sufficient yield for the risk we're going to take. Some of these other markets, is, and I'm not saying that they don't forecast losses, they certainly do, but uh, they're, they're, um, the way they trade is not really to this loss-adjusted basis, right? So they expect some type of losses for the broader market, let's just say, um, you know, corporates at a 2% loss, uh, as an example, but they're not looking at the underlying pool and saying, hey, I expect to lose, you know, 12% of the underlying assets. Where Where is this going to go in terms of the liability and equity side of, of this balance sheet equation? And then do I want to buy it? And what price do I want to buy it um, at those levels of losses? So uh, I would say the analysis is extremely granular on, on the asset back side. And, uh, you know, and the participants are really looking at loan by loan or asset by asset and assigning loss perspectives, um, you know, based on that analysis. So uh, in, in some ways, it's very detailed type work. And uh, I think because of this, you are going to make certain assumptions about certain asset pools. Uh, you may be very draconian in an environment such as this where there's a lot of uncertainty. So I think, uh, you know, that's being reflected in the junior tranches right now. So if I'm an investor today and I'm, you know, I'm a little concerned about the forecast or I'm thinking that, you know, perhaps this thing goes a bit longer, where would you see the best value in assets? Or does it even need that um, that supposition that I laid out to find where you, you would see value? So, so what do you see as being kind of attractive out there, given that there's a disconnect between these markets or at least the, um, the forward looking view on the impact of the overall economy? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's a double-edged sword, but as I mentioned, there's the TALF program that affects a certain segment of the structured finance market, but there's really no other large government-sponsored program that essentially operates as a backstop uh, for structured finance. And for that reason, you know, we do see some price volatility, but for that exact same reason, I do think that it's one of the areas that the best opportunities in the market right now. Right. You don't have this artificial mechanism, uh, you know, hanging over you that's kind of propping your prices up because the expectation that, you know, the government's going to step in and support your market. And because of that, there's probably some real price discovery going on. Uh, when we see uh, the mortgage rates selling out of a commercial mortgage back and residential mortgage back positions at 10 to 12 percent loss adjusted yields to some pretty draconian scenarios, I think that's a great opportunity. When I see, you know, double uh, A, single A CLOs uh, trading at a, um, you know, high single digit type yield, loss adjusted, uh, where we don't, where we, the expectation is that we do not see principal loss on those, on those uh, tranches, uh, that is a great opportunity set. And then in some of these beaten down areas, whether it's leisure and hospitality in the CMBS space, or transportation assets in the asset space, people are essentially pricing in. Uh, you know, these scenarios where where these assets will not be utilized for years. And if you can develop a view that, you know, we do have a recovery and, uh, you know, we can talk about the shape of the recovery, but uh, if if the recovery comes in a couple of years and these bonds are trading at uh, prices that uh, offer tremendous optionality, I think that's also something that's very worthwhile looking at, especially when you're looking against, you know, IG corporates or, or high yield corporates that have this artificial backstop. So, um, you know, are, are they truly pricing in the fundamental risk? You know, th that that that's up for debate. Yeah, I, I think that's important, too, that you, you um, call this an artificial mechanism or artificial pricing, because um, that's the way I view it as well, too. Obviously, we talk a lot. Um, yeah. But, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, seeing the support and snapback, it's almost like, you know, the economy, as soon as we turn on the switch for people to go back to work, we're going to go back to January 2020 productivity levels, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's that's a little um, it's a little Pollyannish, I think, to really think about it from that perspective. Yeah. Um, however, um, you know, I, what I've heard from a lot of investors is that okay, here we go again. And what I mean by that is that you know people have said, okay, well here we are again. The problem asset is once again mortgages, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you hear that word mortgage, and it's like, oh God, here we go again. It's Wall Street again. It's the same old problems we've seen. Yeah. And do you share that view? Is this similar to the, the GFC? How do you draw the parallels of 
the sectors of the market relative to the global financial crisis and what we saw back in 08 and 09. Because yeah. I know a lot of investors are very skittish now. They see these assets go down and say, oh, gosh, here we go again. You know, yeah. the same thing that we saw before. Um, yeah. How are you thinking about that? How does it compare? Um, can you give me the compare contrast of where we are today versus where we are then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, I, I think um, from a reactionary standpoint to someone who's not involved in the structured finance markets day to day, I think uh, I could see. I, I think the reaction is justified. But I think if you look at uh, the scenario that's playing out now versus what we saw play out in 08, it's extremely different. Uh, I, I was involved in the, you know, the credit mortgage market in 08, and I would say uh, firsthand that uh, the 08 financial crisis was largely driven by this overextension of mortgage credit to borrowers who were not really qualified to take on these mortgages. Whether it was predatory predatory lending or not, you know, that's up for debate. Uh, I, I do view that, you know, if you're going to take on um, some liabilities, you should definitely do your homework and understand what you're getting into. But uh, it's, it was clearly seen that these in investors were not qualified to, uh, to take on that type of liability. And what had happened was, is then you had a massive correction in the housing market. And uh, is it justified for investors to say, oh, you know, it was Wall Street's fault? You know, for for extending this credit, sure. I mean, I, I guess you can say that. Um, but what we're looking at this time is is very different, right? Uh, you know, back in 08, you had uh, a lot of economic pain here domestically, but you still had pockets of the global economy that were doing uh, reasonably well. And you know, a very large part of the economy now, China, was actually flourishing back in 08. So. So you had certain pockets of, of positive news, uh, and then you know, domestically we had some pain for, for a little while, and then we, we recovered from that. If you look at the market today, I cannot point to one single economy where I could actually say it's flourishing. Uh, you have downturns at a, at a global scale, and I do think that uh, this time it is definitely not going to be confined to the mortgage market or the commercial mortgage market at that. This is really a global uh, correction and an economy uh, downturn that will be impactful for essentially every country in, in this world. So um, I, I do think that this time it's unjustified and it's probably unfair to say, here we go again, it's the mortgage market. It's absolutely not the mortgage market. It's the global economy this time. Yeah. I think that's a that's a good point too, and then you you know relating that to what you call the artificial mechanism of of support out there for for certain markets, um, you know I think what what investors really need to look about or look at is saying okay what are the expectations and what are what is really priced into these markets and how they're thinking about it. So um, we've had some displacement in prices. Uh, I hate to use the word impair because impair sounds like you're never going to recover it. Yeah. Um, what is kind of your expectations for recovery, Andrew? I mean, you got a lot of experience in these markets. Um, when we think about the, you know, some of these uh, tranches trading down 30, 40, 50 points um, yeah. from from roughly a par value, um, we've seen some stabilization over the last couple of weeks, right, with the risk risk sentiment changing. But you haven't seen this massive retracement of the losses like you saw in the other areas. Uh, what do you kind of think about um, an expectation for some of that retracement back? Um, as people start to say, okay, it's not as draconian as perhaps is priced in the market today, yeah. but also from a standpoint of, you know, how long does it take to get there? Is it going to take a few months of remit data and, and data talking about rents and the cash flows in these assets to, for these things to recover? Um, is it that the artificial markets are way too high and the securitized markets you think are more reflective of reality? How are you thinking about that when thinking about our portfolios today and thinking about, okay, how to deploy capital and how to rotate through some of these sectors right now. Yeah. Um, you know, if we talk macro level, I, I don't think this recovery will be V-shaped. Um, I'm reading a lot of different types of research, and uh, this term keeps popping up of a swoosh-shaped recovery. I'm not sure if that's something, uh, you know, Jeff, you or Sam have, have been reading. but Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the Nike swoosh. I think yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That yeah. That's, that's the logo for Nike, for those who don't know the swoosh. Exactly. Yeah, yeah the right? swoosh, right? Yeah. So right. Th that's more what I'm expecting. Um, the so longer... it's a lower slope. So we had this precipitous decline. Yes. The recovery it won't be U or V. It's like the, you, t you draw like a U and you kind of flatten out the, the right-hand side of that, right? That's right. That's right. So the longer the, the economy is operating at a minimal level, uh, I, I think the, the, the flatter that trajectory is, 
right? So sure. the longer the recovery time period is going to be. Um, you know, what, what's interesting is, is um, and this is maybe not super relevant, but an interesting tidbit is I was on a trip to Greece a couple years back and I learned that um, Nike, Nike's the Greek goddess of victory. And the swoosh that the company uses is the, uh, as its trademark is the shape of one of the wings of um, this goddess of, of victory. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I do think that uh, if this in recovery is long, so the swoosh is very long uh, in shape, um, it's it's going to be difficult to to um, identify who where the victorious areas of the market are right now. Uh, so if you ask the question, it's like you know, uh, you know, how do we identify? How do we shift our portfolios in, in order to kind of capture these opportunities? I, I would say that you know almost parallels our our investment philosophy and our portfolio strategy philosophy um typically you know we are long uh you know we have long philosophies in place in terms of decision making uh generally speaking we're looking out 12 to 18 months so i think being positioned well coming into this event and i don't think anyone out there probably uh forecasted covid uh but for ourselves you know we were looking at fourth quarter of 18 as kind of a catalyst point where we saw deteriorating economic growth, whether it was manufacturing data, whether it was growth data, whether it was, uh, you know, um, CapEx spending by by corporations, uh, you know, we shifted into more of a defensive position. And what does that mean? That means a higher percentage allocation into agency product, the government guaranteed product, uh, increase in uh, treasury securities, but then also on, on the credit side, a shift up in the capital structure. And, you know, that is very fortuitous now, right? I mean, you know, it takes a while to move uh, these positions and kind of get in the right spot. Uh, thankfully, we we had about a year to do this, and I do think that our portfolio is positioned in a very defensive manner now. Uh, what it gives us the ability to do, um, and, you know, hopefully this is answering your question, if it's not, I'll, you know, we can kind of elaborate more, is it gives us the ability to have actually a substantial amount of liquid assets to move uh, in, in the form of uh, treasuries and, and agency mortgages and also senior credit positions to move into these downtrodden areas, the mezzanine areas, the, the areas that are really being priced to um, really draconian scenarios to reposition the portfolio to actually capture some of these upside. So uh, I, would, I would say that, you know, there's not just one area that I think, you know, this is gonna be the winner. I do think that, um, you know, as this plays out, there will be fear in the market, there will be uncertainty in the market. And because of that, a lot of these sectors will be priced uh, accordingly. And I think that having the ability to move and be flexible right now will be uh, a huge positive for, for investors uh, who have this ability. Okay. Um, and so I guess, uh, what could you see as being the catalyst for another downturn out there at this stage? Yeah, um, you know, the, the way I see it is the issue that we're facing right now is really an uncertainty issue with the root cause being an health, a health related issue. So, you know, the Fed and the other, other central banks out there trying to fight this with fiscal solutions, I think it can help. But my personal opinion is that it only helps on the margin. I, I think that if this, this issue is addressed head on, with a health-related solution, it'll be much more effective. So, uh, you know, absent a vaccine, then perhaps a viable treatment. Absent that, maybe an efficient way to test people uh, to identify the scope of the problem. If we do this, and I think if we, uh, uh, you know, relieve the uncertainty, uh, that will help. I think just throwing money at this, uh, regardless of how much money we hand out to corporations or, or people for that matter, uh, we may continue to see the social distancing and this affects the way we work, the way we spend money, travel, and, and ultimately live. So we will see this prolonged weakness. So I think if if the problem is addressed at the root cause, uh, I think by relieving uncertainty, that will help us alleviate weakness. And I think that's where we start our recovery. Yeah, I think it's a, it's important. Uh, the distinction you make there between kind of, you know, throwing money at a problem versus going after the core root of the problem, uh, because, you know, we're so used to in financial markets uh, relying on the Fed. We've done that for 20 plus years back to the Greenspan era. Uh, where they call it the Fed put. And you just can't really change interest rate. Interest rates don't really change the fact that people are unemployed right now, right? Yes. Um, you know, when you look at the data, there's a lot of arguing about how the initial claims kind of translates into unemployment, but it looks like we've at least erased most of the jobs um, that we've created since the crisis. It's not exactly pari passu, it's not one for one. Um, but ultimately, I'd say that, um, you know, as you look at it, 
I think the, the big challenge here is how quick do we get that unemployment rate down again? Right. Yeah. How many of those jobs That's come right. back? Um, how many people stay displaced? And, and you're right talking about fiscal policies, but um, I've, I've been kind of critical of the idea that people call the stimulus at the, at the fiscal level simply yeah. because I just don't think that this is a fiscal stimulus. Right. This yeah. is a fiscal plug the gap. We're trying to get things going. Um, you know, you're going to see lots of um, reports about mishandlement, mishandling uh, and mismanagement of these um processes or that the plumbing doesn't work all the way and you're, you're seeing it on the SBA loans and the like today. Uh, however, I think right now too, as we look at financial markets, it's important to really uh, make sure that we don't get caught up in a panacea and say, okay, well, look, this is, was just a buy the dip moment. Because if you're talking about an economic swoosh and that's, that's the trajectory of the recovery, um, some of these asset prices, I think, got way ahead of themselves. Um, again, only time will tell, um, you know, which part of the markets are right. But, um, you know, if, if you're concerned about um, that longer trajectory and that slower recovery, I think some of these assets are prone to have another uh, big leg back down probably to previous levels. Uh, yeah. what, what's your sense on that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the first leg, and it was very short lived. Right? I mean, it was in the fastest correction in, in the history of really equity markets. Uh, of, of that magnitude, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if that same fact stands for for the corporate market, but it was extremely fast as well. And then what you see transpire in the structured finance market is the same thing. So uh, I don't think, you know, if if the expectation is only one correction for an event that it has a uh, of a global scale like this, uh, you know, I think you'd be naive to believe that. Uh, the first correction, what we saw, you know, over the last, you know several weeks, six, five, six weeks, I believe was a technical correction. I, I think the next one that we'll see is a uh, correction based on fundamentals, right? So we were going to see readmit data, we're going to see earnings data, we're going to see unemployment data. And that eventually when that seeps in and people grasp the magnitude of this, then we could see another correction and potentially another correction even after that. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to, you know, paint this picture of a, you know, really dire situation because I do think that, you know, on a global scale, people are really trying to kind of find solutions for this. But, um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, this is a one and done type type situation where we had this one correction in the last, you know, five six weeks, and then we go back on our merry way. Um, I, I do think this will be dr dragged out. Um, there will be areas of weakness. There will be areas of strength, uh, but. I do think that throughout all these corrections, there will be actually many areas of opportunities, and I think it will take discipline to to kind of wait for those. Uh, but also, it's going to take some some um, fortitude in in order to uh, tr transact in those as well, because uh, it, it may get a little bit scary uh, going forward. Okay, so that that. That's a great way to try to end this podcast, Andrew. So maybe given that view, maybe you could tell our listeners how you're adjusting portfolios or how you're rethinking, re-underwriting securities and rethinking about um, positioning within our portfolios for the remainder of 2020, given that viewpoint. Sure. Uh, you know, so we want to be pragmatic in our decision making. Uh, we have, again, mentioned just a few minutes earlier, we have positioned the portfolio defensively. So it gives us the ability to take on more risk right now. Uh, we want to be mindful about taking this risk. You know, we certainly will not deploy all our capital at once. And I do think that it needs to be justified by, uh, you know, having substantial views about the fundamentals here. Uh, clearly, intervention by central banks and, and governments around the world has has impacted pricing. Uh, in some cases, buoyed pricing, where I do think there should be, you know, further corrections. And you know, I, we'll see if that happens. But my expectation is that will happen. So, uh, you know, our idea uh, for our portfolios is to look for pockets of opportunity and actually shift out of some of these, uh, you know, more defensive, more liquid type positions into uh, more opportunistic positions over time. Uh, and I think the pace will be gradual. It certainly, will not fire all our, all, all our bullets at once. But really, uh, you know, leg in over time and hopefully, um, you know, build a portfolio that, uh, you know, has, has a really good balance between uh, the defensive nature, but also uh, capturing a lot of the upside we get through some of this, these disruptions. Okay. Well, I think that's a, that's a great summary, Andrew. We really appreciate the time today. Um, I think Sam uh, got disconnected from us. That's why I'm going to claim why he didn't ask any questions or uh, I guess or he found our conversation so riveting he didn't want to interject. 
but I'm not going to let him off the hook regardless. We're going to make sure he gets to do his favorite part of the show. So, Sam, why don't you take us home here? Yeah, and I, I think riveting is the is a perfect word to describe that conversation. Definitely learned a lot. And, uh, you know, the, the artificial markets with the 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 Fed throwing money at a problem is is definitely something that's not going to solve it. So um, with that, my favorite part of the show is Sherman Says. And with this, Mr. Sue, you've been through this ordeal before. What I'll do is I'll offer a series of prompts alternating between you and Mr. Sherman. Uh, to which you'll provide a top of mind response. So I'll start out with Mr. Sherman with World Health Organization. Who? Mr. Sherman. Oh, no, who? That's the acronym. H- oh. Is that what you're asking me? WHO? Okay. That's right. Um, necessary. Mr. Sue, moral hazard. Pervasive. Sherman, financials. Challenged. Andrew, April versus March. Um, calm before the storm. Right? Tiger King. Insane. <laughs> Credit cards. Talf. Second wave. Likely. Sports stadiums. Empty. Retail sales. Atrocious. It was the worst number, worst month over month number since they've been reporting it. Year over year, it was uh, very similar. So very, very challenged. And the last one here for Mr. Sue, personal savings. (sighs) Increasing. All right. Actually, you know, I'm going to change my answer. My answer is going to be just do it. It's got to go be with a swoosh. <laughs> I like it. I like bring it full circle, Andrew. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, th- thanks for the time today again, Andrew. And thanks, uh, everybody, for listening here. Hopefully you found that a bit informative. Um, some of the challenges in the structured products market, some of the opportunity sets we see there. Um, and, you know, as always, thinking about um, how to manage portfolios and try to have that balance of some defensive mix with uh, trying to play a little offense as well. So again, Andrew, thank you for the time today. Thanks everyone for listening. You can catch these uh, podcasts on our website or wherever you uh, get all of your podcasts from. Don't forget, you can follow us uh, on the Twitter. Uh, it's at Sherman Show Pod, all one word, at Sherman Show Pod. If you want to get out there, I will put some summaries of this up, put some charts to back up the data that uh, Mr. Sue was talking about today. And you can always find us. Uh, one day we'll post again on the YouTube channel, but youtube.com backslash Double Line Capital. So again, thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for our next guest coming soon. Thanks again. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk.
Copyright 2020, Double on Capital.